They called us monsters, so monsters we became. We are monsters out of the closet. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to another bonus interview of Monsters Out of the Closet. This is your producer, Nicole, and we are joined today in person by Benus, author of the piece, It Gets Better, which was featured in our recent episode, Reclaim. If you haven't listened to it, you definitely should go back and do so. It's an awesome piece. Yeah, with that, um, hi, Benus, and thanks for coming onto the podcast to talk about your piece today. Hi. To kind of get started, um, some of our listeners might not realize you've actually already been a contributing um, a member of the Monster Mob. You uh, helped come up with the piece Lossless, which was featured in our seventh episode, Haunt. It's noted in the episode that the concept was by you. Um, if you want to talk to us a little bit about where that piece came from, I'd love to learn more. Um, it just happens when you're talking with friends. Normally my ideas are a bit ridiculous and... We decide not to go with them for any reason, mostly for the better. But something magical just happened while talking with my good friend, and just an offhand comment turned into several hours of texting back and forth and saying, but what if? What was the offhand comment? Mm, Haunted VHS tapes. Haunted VHS tapes. I love that. Because it's like this really interesting connection between like something very like spiritual and unknown with some kind of um, maybe more antique technology. And I guess like there's also an element with like museums too. Museums are sometimes seen as kind of these old world spaces. Where did you kind of play around with those ideas as you were working with Dada on the piece? I think it initially started as just um, a creepy voice crawling in through a VHS tape that resented being forgotten. And then we went into the whole idea of, well, what if it was a loved one? And what would they want for you if they knew that you missed them this much um, and that they were gone? Realizing that at some point, maybe it would be hurting them to be forcing them to stay around. Especially since, as we know, beloved VHS tapes and cartridges do deteriorate over time. Mm -hmm. Um, You just have to let them go. Right. And then you had this idea of, you know, this kind of time crunch happening, this ticking clock on those audio guides at the museum. And you do have this really kind of tender acknowledgement at the end that they have to say goodbye to each other. And that really rung as like authentic and um, very humanistic, that connection between the voice and the listener. Was there any point as you were developing the idea, were you guys actually envisioning it in audio form or was it always kind of like, you know, maybe more of a story and it was later developed into a script? I mean, from my end, I always just pictured it as being purely audio. Um, A lot of the times with the ideas of ghosts and specters, it's always very visual of there was just something blinking in the edge of your sight. But um, one thing I liked about my old cassette tapes is just the sound of it. Um, You can hear it falling apart in the background sometimes as the static starts to creep in on the music more and more. I'm thinking, well, you know, musicians like Radiohead have actually played with that static and put hidden messages in them so that if you push the cassette a little bit farther than you think it should go, they have extra recordings in there. Mm -hmm. Um, And wondering how, like, 
if a spirit wanted to embody something in that cassette, it could do something similar, but in the process also damage the material. That's super cool. And it also kind of explores the idea of like the art and the deterioration of the art being intrinsic into the art, which is also kind of a human idea, the way that over time as humans decay as they change, it's an inherent part of their humanity too. Kind of connecting humans and people and how people change, um, it gets better is a piece about a person's change over time as they encounter obstacles that could maybe make their spirit, you know, suffer, that could, you know, cause the deterioration of their living conditions. We're talking explicitly about the vile and horrific effects of homophobia. Um, and before we started recording, you men mentioned that the big inspiration for this piece was that you were mad. Let's talk more about that. I'm still mad. <laughs> still mad. I'm still very angry. Um, but writing it really helped direct that emotion outward instead of just, I don't know, destroying me from the inside. It's like, well, it's over there now. And someone else can be angry with me and it doesn't have to be all on me by myself anymore. Mm -hmm. Um... There was just a really unpleasant experience at my former workplace. Oh, shit. Yeah, that related to it, which was, I don't know, lightly, heavily implied in the story. <laughs> right. That's really shitty. And I remember in the last couple of years since the election, people trying to reassure me that, you know, things aren't going to really change that much. But I, if anything, I think the last couple of years have given license to more normalized hate and the onus has been on a lot of us in marginalized positions to be more forgiving to be more accepting and to you know turn the other cheek to take the moral high ground but you know there's no moral high ground when we get buried under you know these heaps of homophobia and vi daily violence and you talked about this uh, experience of writing it kind of being cathartic and a way to kind of like move this experience to another space. And the piece also explores the idea of power in words and also power in actions. How, how did that idea kind of connect for you as you were writing? Several ways, actually. My undergraduate degree was in linguistics and psychology. So I managed to piece together all these classes combining how to be happy, because I didn't know yet, um, how to overcome trauma, and also just what are words, because they're very confusing, especially for someone learning more than one language, which was something that really influenced me, because English is my second language, and I am a bilingual teacher for my students. So a lot of the time, especially from a really trauma-filled community, the slightest word that they choose has so much significance. Mm -hmm. And if you just take the time to talk it out with them, you'll realize these incredibly deep and nuanced thoughts and emotions that these children have, but people often toss them aside because they used the wrong word or they didn't know mm -hmm. what they were saying, supposedly. They just didn't know the words that right. you wanted them to know. Yeah. And how irritating it is that a lot of the times we just throw off some of those emotions with just offhand comments of, um, don't let them get the best of you, you know. If you get upset, it'll just make them keep going, or it'll get better eventually right. at some point. Let's talk about that phrase, it gets better. 
for any of our listeners who don't exactly get where that phrase comes from, it was a campaign, I think, started by Dan Savage uh, to use the phrase, it gets better, to kind of throw support to um, LGBTQ youth who were, um, you know, there was a period where there was just a rash of, you know, suicides and just violence against young LGBT people. And the phrase, it gets better, was kind of used to kind of indicate that, you know, it's okay. You know, what what doesn't kill you makes you stronger and you'll you'll overcome this. And, you know, for some people, I'm sure that that campaign meant a lot, but for a lot of people, you know, what your piece points out is that it's a lot of, you know, empty words, not a lot of specificity. How how did you connect to this phrase? I held on to that phrase a lot as a kid, um, coming to the realization that, fuck, this is my life now, and knowing that choosing to be with the person that makes me happiest is going to make a lot of people try to make me miserable. I hung on to it as like, you know, it's just middle school, and then it was just high school, and then it was just living in the South, but then I moved to this place that was supposedly very, very liberal, and whereas in other places I'd be like, wow, they're so brave, they put up that rainbow, that means they're in just as much risk of being harassed as I am, but here everyone puts it up, including individual who caused me a lot of strife and told me that if I could not handle being verbally abused um, for being gay at my workplace, that I should pick a different workplace. And part of me really wanted to just stay out of spite, but also there's, there are limits. Mm-hmm. There's, there's no real excuse to kind of put someone in that amount of pain, you know, for profit. And that's unfortunately what a lot of workplaces are, are content to do. And no one should feel like they have to stay in an unsafe environment like that. So I worked there three years. Just as soon as I graduated, I was like, let's do this. I love kids. They love me. This is going to be great. And it was. It really was my dream job in so many ways. But at first, I wasn't out. And it took me almost a full school year before I saw a wedding photo in one of the teacher's classrooms. And I just stayed staring at it because I realized after a while there were two wedding dresses. And my students noticed me staring and they're like, what, do you have a problem? And I'm like, no, but that's your teacher, right? She's married to another lady. She's like, yeah, she's gay and that's fine. I'm like, I know, it's just so exciting to see because I normally don't see people like me. And I got this horde of children just being so happy. They're like, you too! We love you so much! It's okay! Don't let anyone bother you about it! Mm-hmm. Like, I know children. You know best. Yeah. Um, and then that teacher left, and I realized it was me. I had to be that token gay so that all those kids could could say those same things to other people if they ever met them and say, like, that's cool. My teacher was gay, and she was wonderful. You're probably wonderful, too. I'll give you the benefit of the doubt, because I already know it exists, and nothing bad happened. Mm-hmm. And it sucks when it's not it's not the kids who are causing these problems. It's not, you know, young people that we need to, like, guard from this very normal thing. It's, it's adults who have these hang-ups, who, who have this, you know, hate. In... 
in the piece, it gets better is used as kind of like a talisman for a while um, to kind of protect. But eventually it is kind of turned into a spell that, um, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about the ending, which was so exciting to me. There is um, a little bit of implication that it becomes this source for righteous fury, like vengeance, like a an avenging angel um, as uh, Delphi gains, you know, these kind of like superhuman um kind of auras around her um how how did you come to write that ending being mad being angry it was especially hurtful because i got parents um coming to me and apologizing for what had happened and asking if they could help me in any way and students from other classes that i hadn't spoken to in years they'd already graduated coming back and assuring me that everything was okay, and hearing them use these words and realizing just, um, it started feeling a bit suffocating to heal, hear all this encouragement, because we always teach these kids to let it go and move on and realizing that, uh, no, I am twice your age, it's still not better, I don't know what's going on, and I don't feel like I should lie to you about it anymore, and feeling like I was being poisoned by this positive attitude um, mm -hmm. and feeling quite monstrous myself with just how angry I was all the time and that it was uh, definitely hurting me and I realized that I have friends who uh, help this podcast and listen to this podcast and Thara suggested that um, I try writing something to see if that helped at all they want a monster, I'll show you, I'll show you all. Um, <laughs> and help. Yeah. I think sometimes by acknowledging kind of the trauma, by just spelling it out, exposing it, um, exposing that hurt and being honest about it, it can, you know, strip it of its power. And, you know, there's something, there's something really, really cathartic in in being that monster and saying that if I'm a monster, that that's good. That's fine. I mean, there is, there are moments when, you know, sometimes it, it does suck to feel like the token gay in a room. Um, but there's every day that I think if, if being tokenized, if being, you know, scoffed at, if it being, um, demeaned is like part of it and, that that I'm I'm somehow wrong or immoral or whatever, that's fine because it is so great to be gay, and like I think any any power that be that I am gay every day, it's the best. It's the best, <laughs> and like anyone who says any different is horribly wrong, horribly wrong, and um, you know that's their prerogative, um, and we'll we'll let them burn. <laughs> for it but that's okay oh yeah um what, what what were you hoping that people would take away from this piece that it's all right to be angry and just hang on to that hope people get their comeuppance mm -hmm. and sometimes you are the comeuppance mm -hmm. just in being so gay yeah messing up their straight little lives <laughs> um the amount of students that have come out to me in elementary school after knowing me 
has just been so nice that they felt safe enough and that they were able to have those words to discover something about them so soon so that it wouldn't be this horrible confusion for most of their lives. It was so worth it, and I know it's exactly what those people did not want, and so it's my own personal victory there. Mm -hmm. The anger stuff, that doesn't get better, but as a lot of horror novels I've seen have told me, and how I've sort of learned myself, is you just get more capacity for emotion. And so that anger doesn't really ever go away, but other things, they get bigger. Like, mm. the great parts of my life have only gotten better. And it's a big reason why I ended up choosing to leave that job, because if the rest of my life is just so good, why am I wasting my time being miserable here? So. Snaps to that. You mentioned uh, other horror novels. Do you feel like the story and how you how you were able to kind of process this traumatic and hurtful thing that happened? Uh, do you think it was inspired by any particular pieces of horror, or do you feel like it was it was more of a lens that you were looking at the experience? I can't pick a story in particular that inspired it, so I think it's best to say it was a lens. It's especially nice to take all these stories that I've collected in my head that I've read through the years and say, well, what if it was gay? Mm -hmm. And it's just so much better to mm -hmm. be able to see myself in this story on a really personal level, as egoistic as that is. Well, I mean, that was a that was a big chunk of the rest of the episode was like reimagining and reinterpreting different stories. Um, Shreya's piece was reexamining the story of Sita, and I rewrote Twilight for my own gay <laughs> vision. Um, oh, that's great. Yeah, and so yeah, that that was. I think that those are different ways of processing a lot of the same stuff. Is like, well, if I'm not there. Surprise, they were all gay the whole time. All along. All along. You just didn't know. It's been great. After um, doing this and going through the podcast, um, my fiancé and I have actually made the effort of searching through all of the bookstores, just finding all of the LGBT plus fantasy fiction available, and it's about three bookshelves. That's awesome. Uh, do you have any recommendations for our listeners? Not yet. <laughs> well, as someone who has also um, an overstuffed bookshelf that contain way too many books that have yet to be read, I totally understand <laughs> that. With kind of uh, this episode behind you, uh, are there any other stories that you have yet to tell? Um, have you have you exhausted your anger on this piece, or do you want to continue exploring it in different pieces? Do you, do you see yourself creating more pieces like this? I do have a notebook with a bunch of story ideas related. Um, not all angry. A lot of them not angry at all, actually. It's kind of nice. Mm -hmm. uh, but I am getting married within the next year, so there's a lot I have to work through in order to have some of my family come to that wedding. So there will probably be a lot of inspiration there. <laughs> Well, congratulations on the upcoming nuptials, and congratulations on a really phenomenally furious piece. I think, you know, if anything, you know, everyone's talking about, you know, Pride 2018 followed by Wrath 2018. 
And I think that this piece was, you know, the perfect capstone for such an auspicious month. So thank you for sharing that story. Um, not just it gets better, but also, you know, your own very real world experience. Because I'm sure that, um, you know, there are many listeners out there who can probably connect to elements of that. And I think it's important for our listeners to know that if you're feeling monstrous, if you're feeling anger, you know, that anger, that like feeling is not bad and it's okay. It's justified and it is righteous and um, you're not alone. Yeah. So thank you so much, Benus, for joining us today. Yeah. Thank you for this podcast. Thank you for, for your support of it. You've just been listening to an interview with author Benus. We want to extend another thanks to her for sharing her story about the homophobic discrimination she faced. And we want to remind our listeners that you are not alone. Monsters Out of the Closet was built by LGBTQ plus folks for our community. So thank you for continuing to support us and continuing to be part of our community. Our next episode, Nature, will go live August 28th. But before then, please keep an eye out on your feed for a special announcement in the next week. Until then, Monsters out.